0: We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Arema, sponsored by the American Health Information Management Association. Today we welcome Drs. Drew Updike and Deborah Anoff. They'll report on how they helped modify Patient Safety Indicator 6 criteria for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Their work is a blueprint for solving a local problem on a national level. Senior healthcare consultant Laurie Johnson has the latest coding news and the Talk Ten Tuesday listener survey, and Tim Powell is at the Tuesday news desk. We're all here and ready to go. And no one is more ready to go than the publisher of ICD 10 Monitor and the host of Talk Ten Tuesday, Chuck Buck. Thank
1: you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 458th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. Anaheim is sponsoring HIP Week health information professional week it's here it's now and it's hip to be hip. And good morning Erica boy I'm really glad you're here this morning on this broadcast
2: well happy hip week and good (laughs) morning everyone and Chuck why are you happy that I'm here on this broadcast I'm here nearly every Tuesday
1: (laughs) that's true that's true but today's different because you invited doctors Drew Updike and Deborah Anoff to be our special guest today so explain why
2: Deb is on the American College of Physician Advisors CDI Committee with me, and she and Drew are going to tell us how they discovered an issue and had the exclusion criteria for a patient safety indicator changed. It's an inspiring story.
1: Well, that explains everything. Also, in today's broadcast, we're going to hear the Talk Ten Tuesday coding Report from Laurie Johnson. And you, Erica, you've got a back segment today. What are you going to be talking about?
2: Well, I'm going to be talking about a patient safety indicator too. Patient safety indicator eleven. I'm going to address defining acute pulmonary insufficiency.
1: Hmm. Always looking forward to your Talkback segments. Of course, we have much news to report. I'm going to begin this
0: morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk Ten Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell.
3: Thanks, Chuck. And the Office of Inspector General, or the OIG, recently sent out a press release on COVID vaccination providers. The OIG stated that all organizations and providers participating in the CDC COVID-19 vaccination program must administer COVID-19 vaccine with no out-of-pocket cost to the recipient, may not deny anyone vaccination based on the re- vaccine recipient's coverage status or network status, may not charge for an office visit or other fee if the COVID vaccination is the sole medical service provided. They may not require additional medical services to receive the COVID-19 vaccination, and they may seek appropriate reimbursement from a program or plan that covers COVID-19 vaccination administration fees for the vaccine recipient, such as the vaccine's private insurance company, Medicare or Medicaid, or HRSA, COVID-19 Uninsured Program for Uninsured Vaccine Recipients, and they may not seek reimbursement through balanced billing from the vaccine recipient. The OIG went on to clarify that providers could bill for. uh, The OIG is aware that of complaints by patients that charges for providers when getting their COVID-19 vaccinations, the providers that charge impermissible fees must refund them and ensure that individuals are not charged fees for the COVID-19 vaccine or vaccine administration in the future. Consistent with the CDC vaccine program, providers are permitted to bill third-party providers such as Medicare, Medicaid, or uninsured program or private insurers for an administration fee in accordance with the payer's applicable billing rules. What should you do if your provider tries to bill for providing your vaccination? You can report potential fraud by calling or emailing the OIG at one 800 424-9071 or emailing hotline, H-O-T-L-I-N-E at O-I-G dot D-O-T dot G-O-V. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 bond international correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's April 20th. Today, the death toll from the deadly coronavirus now stands at more than 567,000. You're listening to Talk Tuesday. Stand by.
0: The impact health information professionals have on the quality of patient care around the globe is the reason we and AHIMA celebrate Hip Week. As COVID-19 has shown, health data and your work are more important than ever. Health information professionals are trusted by patients and providers alike to protect, interpret, and transmit the most sensitive data that exists about a person while making sure it's available where and when it's needed. This year's HIP Week theme emphasizes that health information professionals keep health information human. When health information stays human, it stays relevant. Thank you to all health information professionals who work to keep health information human. Visit hipweek.org slash recognition to read how health information professionals make a difference every day. Here now with the Talk
1: 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Lori also has the Talk 10 Tuesday Listener Survey, and good morning, Lori.
4: Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and happy HIP Week to our listeners. Last week, I talked about the importance of facility-specific coding guidelines. We also talked about data to be considered when developing those guidelines. I was very happy with the results of last week's listener survey where the majority had written guidelines. This week, I want to cover procedures to be considered when writing your facility-specific Coding guidelines. When you report procedures, you also have to report the date and responsible physician, which impacts data entry. It is a foregone conclusion that everything in the operating room is reported, so we're going to review procedures that are done outside the operating room. The first group is new technology procedures that add reimbursement to the DRG payment. Have you reviewed the list and identified what is used in your facility? I've attached a listing for fiscal year 21 for your use under the resources from Laurie Johnson tab. Remember that this list is amended annually. There are currently 22 items that can generate additional reimbursement. Let's talk about radiology procedures. Are you coding CTs, CTAs, MRIs, MRAs, ultrasounds or Dopplers? If so, for what reason? If you have a charge master issue which requires the PCS code, then perhaps the charge master could be modified so that you no longer have to report the PCS codes. Moving on to newborn procedures, are you coding hearing tests or vaccinations? Again, please check the reasons for capturing the data with PCS codes. The data should be available via the charge master. Another area is radiation therapy and chemotherapy. These procedures no longer affect the MSDRG or APR DRGs. Physical therapy, occupational therapy are important if you assign uh, rehab DRGs. But otherwise you may want to investigate why you're assigning those codes. Here's a few more categories to consider. Bedside procedures, EEGs, infusions, injections, vaccination, and midline catheters. Verify if they impact reimbursement or your data reporting. The listener survey today is, have you reviewed the items for new technology add-on payment and communicated to the inpatient coders which ones should be coded for your facility? The first answer is current, The second is not currently, meaning you've identified them in the past, but you haven't updated them for fiscal year 21. Nope, I haven't looked regarding the uh, new technology add-on payments, and the last choice is not applicable, and we'll return to review those results. Back to you, Erica. Thank
2: you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC.
1: Thanks, Erica, and Lori Johnson. Thank you very much. And as Lori said, we're going to have the results of the Talk 10 Tuesday Listener Survey later in this broadcast.
0: Next, our lead story with Drs. Drew Updike and Deborah Anoff. Today's lead story is brought to you by the Association for Healthcare Denial and Appeal Management. ADAM, the nation's only association dedicated to healthcare denial and appeal management. ADAM supports and promotes professionals working in the field of healthcare care insurance denial and appeal management through education and collaboration. Find out more at ADAMAHDAM.org.
1: Here now to properly introduce our special guest, Dr. Drew Updike and Deborah Anoff, is our very own Dr. Erica Reimer. Erica, it's yours.
2: Have you ever looked at a quality indicator and thought an exclusion criterion was missing that was skewing your data? Our next guests had exactly that experience, and they are here to share how CDI, coding, and quality can work together to make a real change. We have Drs. Drew Updike and Deborah Anoff from UC Health
5: to explain. Drew? Thank you so much, Erica. This is Dr. Drew Updike. And first, I wanted to start, Erica, by sharing that I have uh, no disclosures or financial conflicts of interest, and the views and opinions expressed are exclusively my own, uh, as they are not representative of UC Health or University of Colorado School of Medicine. That being said, I will share that the organization is particularly proud of the work that we've engaged in, and as Chuck had introduced earlier in the segment, uh, we really did take on a local issue and come up with a national solution. So that's one that our organization is very, uh, very proud of, and we're happy to be able to share on Talk 10 Tuesday today. It wasn't lost on me that the original title of our presentation uh, was a little inside, kind of a medically nerdy uh, pun, uh, but it was originally titled Had a Nuss of This. And NUS is a corrective surgery uh, to uh, help uh, persons with a congenital abnormality called pectus excavatum. Uh, In uh, simple terms, it means a concave chest. Many times this is corrected in pediatrics, um, but our medical center is a referral center in the western region of the United States because we have a specialty cardiothoracic surgeon who does this corrective surgery as an adult. And the procedure uh, bears the name of its originator, Nuss. And so um, this is a story of advocacy um, because our surgery team uh, really did have enough of this. They um, were being uh, unfairly um, uh, graded uh, for quality um, for something that they were doing appropriately. So I'll share a little background, Erica, and then uh, Dr. Anoff is going to weigh in on the investigation um, that she uh, led to kind of get us to a resolution that we'll then share at the end of the segment. So in 2020, our Vizient Quality and Accountability um, scores had downtrended, and this is primarily driven in the safety realm. That accounts for about 25% of your scorecard. And for those, for those listeners who aren't familiar with Vizient, it's our data warehouse um, and a quality um, tool that we use at our academic medical center. So PSI 6, the patient safety indicator 6, had shown up as heavily driving this safety area. And um, for those of you that are familiar with PSI 6, it has exclusion criteria that um, allow for patients undergoing chest surgeries or thoracic surgeries to be excluded from it because it is specifically a safety indicator for pneumothoraces, so air inside the chest cavity. And these should be pretty rare events. So only a few events, over a 1,000 cases, really drive your PSI 6 number. And what our clinical quality specialists had found when they were tasked to review this downtrend in our quality and accountability score was that a few cases within this NUSC procedure area were really driving our PSI 6 metric. And this didn't make a ton of sense to her because her background had been in cardiothoracic surgery, and she knew that this type of procedure intentionally entered the chest cavity. And so why would it be counted towards a pneumothorax uh, safety indicator if the intention was to actually go into the chest cavity and by default um, create a pneumothorax, which then had a chest tube um, as part of the postoperative care? So she brought this to the attention of our CDI team, coding team, and other quality members. And I'll ask the viewers on this segment, what happens when um, something doesn't necessarily make sense? Well, of course, we blame the documentation and we blame the coding first because we assume that it must be something that's controllable in those realms. So that's how it got to Dr. Anoff's attention. And I'll let her share what kind of investigation ensued.
6: Thanks, Drew. So an investigation, it definitely was. Um, I was reviewing the information uh, that for today and noticed last night that before we even got to the submission piece that we'll talk about shortly, there were 72 emails amongst 12 to 14 people over a few-month period of time. So when I initially heard about this from our clinical quality specialist to whom Drew was referring in the quality department, I reached out to one of of our CDI nurses, who actually uh, is in charge of part of a pre-bill work queue that looks at these PSIs, uh, trying to find exclusions, query opportunities, et cetera. And when she gave me ex- an example of one of these, I noticed that it was placed into a musculoskeletal DRG, uh, as were some of the others, 515 and 516, And just reading the OP report, it looked like, as Drew said, that you had to enter the thoracic cavity. So it really made no sense as to why uh, this was landing into a musculoskeletal DRG. Long story short, back in 2018, there was a request to place uh, pectus excavatum and the associated procedure in a musculoskeletal DRG so that it would align with the other congenital musculoskeletal issues. So after that, we were trying to figure out, gosh, you know, why are we so affected? And part of that was just what Drew said. A lot of these are done at children's hospitals where Invisient looks at Uh, cases of patients 18 and older and we did a fair number of these So as we went back and forth and did the investigation, we found that, you know, one thing that may have been an area of opportunity is that we did post-op x-rays on all these patients as opposed to symptom-based x-rays. So maybe we were picking up on things and coding and getting faulted for things that were not clinically significant. So one possibility would be to query for clinical significance uh, on these cases, Another option that we uh, discussed is to say that these were inherent or have the doctors state that these were inherent to the procedure. Now, that being said, they, we found that they only occurred in about 60% of cases. So it was really hard to say that, uh, pneumothoraces were inherent and some required chest tubes and some not. So, uh, that was, you know, very difficult to make a case for as well. Um, and then, you know, then another opportunity would be to go back and ask, even though that these, uh, the diagnosis and the procedure were just switched to uh, musculoskeletal DRG and the associated MDC back in 2018, to say, gosh, we think this is an unintended qu- consequence. So let's go back again and say, hey, we actually want this to be in a thoracic DRG. Then the last, uh, thing that we considered was, gosh, maybe the best thing to do would be to go back to AHRQ and say, perhaps this should be included as an exclusion because, as Drew mentioned, uh, one of the exclusions for this PSI 6 are, uh, thoracic surgeries or cardiac surgeries. So that is kind of where we decided, uh, the best route would be and where the advocacy would start. Back to you, Drew.
5: Thanks so much, Deb. And so the fourth option, the advocating to the AHRQ for the clinical rationale of making this type of procedure and ICD-10 PCS an exclusion, um, as well as the um, DR potentially DRG within which it sat, um, was something that we chose to take on. And so we wanted to recognize that the the hardworking folks at AHRQ are trying to um, uh, compile all of these different clinical situations. And we kind of caught them at the right time before they'd come out with their 2021 uh, metric um, algorithms and logic. And they heard us, they considered what we shared, and they resolved it. And so now moving forward, the PCS code for the NUS procedure, as well as other Uh, codes uh, for corrective um, surgical um, items that may have fallen under musculoskeletal MDCs, but were really entering the chest cavity, will now be part of the exclusion criteria for PSI 6. So what Dr. Anoff and I wanted to um, reiterate is that we're not on a metric crusade. Um, But what we wanted to do was really take on our primary responsibilities as physician advisors and medical directors of our uh, respective fields, and that is patient safety. And if we can listen to our surgical partners or our clinical partners when they say something isn't right and advocate to make it better and more accurate representation of their actual patient outcomes, then we're working towards our highest goal, which is patient safety. And so with that, we wanted to share some appreciation for those who advocated back in 2018 for the CMS change of the condition code and the um, procedure code into the same MDC. Because if they hadn't done that, then perhaps this flag that was raised by seeing a musculoskeletal DRG uh, with a recognizable procedure crop up in this uh, PSI-6, may have not gotten on the radar of our clinical quality specialists, and we may not have walked down this road. So we wanted to say thank you to those who had um, advocated for that back in 2018 and for our quality CDI coding and clinical partners at UC Health and the CU School of Medicine who collaborated with us and now uh, probably have um, a closer relationship uh, with our role as physician advisors, being able to advocate ab, advocate for them uh, when things just don't make sense. So we wanted to say thank you to Dr. Erica Reamer, uh, Chuck Buck, for inviting us to share the story of solving local problems at a national level uh, with the Talk10 audience.
2: Thank you so much, Drew and Deb. This was Uh, Unbelievable, and I think that everybody really appreciates your sharing this story. You were listening to Dr. Drew Updike. He's the Medical Director of Coding at UC Health, and Dr. Deborah Anoff is Senior Medical Director of Clinical Documentation Integrity for UC Health. Chuck,
1: Thanks, Erica, and I want to uh, reinforce what you just said. It was an excellent presentation. We thank you so much, Doctors Drew Updike and Deborah Anoff. Thank you again. Coming up next, the surprising results of the Days Talked in the listener survey with Lori Johnson.
0: Stand by. It's here, Health Information Professional Week, HIP Week. We celebrate the tireless contributions these professionals make in the lives of patients and providers alike. And thanks to the training and education provided by the American Health Information Management Association, AHIMA, these dedicated professionals know how to keep patient health information data accurate, secure, and most importantly, personal. Because when it's personal, it's relevant. During HIP Week, when you subscribe to the annual ICD-10 Monitor educational portal, You'll receive the 13th month absolutely free. You can also share 12 months of superb educational content with a fellow colleague and get the 13 month free for your fellow worker. Sign up using the code HIPWEEK21 to receive 13 months of the ICD 10 portal for the price of 12.
1: Here now with the Talking Tuesday listener survey is Lori Johnson.
4: The results of the listener survey are. A, current fiscal year 21, 23.64%, not current, but have done it in the past, 6%. They have not looked at the NTAP payments or communicated them to their inpatient coders, 24%, and not applicable, 47%. So for those that have not looked at the NTAP, you may want to look at those as soon as possible because you can add some reimbursement to your facility.
1: Now's the time for our very popular segment here at Talk to c It's called Talk Back in the Features Home, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's yours.
2: Well, coding clinical disconnect time. I got an email from a CDI friend from my previous life as a physician advisor asking my opinion on acute pulmonary insufficiency. She pointed out that the Actus CDI handbook says, and I quote, there presently are no defined diagnostic criteria published related to pulmonary insufficiency, close quote, and that, quote, a literature search of this term describes incompetence or regurgitation of the pulmonary valve, close quote. Actus' advice is that the documentation of pulmonary insufficiency would likely require further clarification from the provider. Post-procedural respiratory failure is uh, a major comorbid condition or complication, MCC, but it has the potential of triggering patient safety indicator PSI-11, post-operative respiratory failure. The components of PSI-11 are that there is acute respiratory failure, and it had its onset following and due to a complication of the surgery, as opposed to arising from an underlying pulmonary condition or being present on admission. Exclusions falling in, uh, include falling into a DRG in major diagnostic uh, category 4, which is respiratory system, circulatory system, uh, MDC-5, undergoing procedures prone to respiratory issues like laryngeal, craniofacial, esophageal, or lung surgery, and having certain neurological or neuromuscular disorders, including dementia and critical illness myopathy. Actis is correct when they say there are no defined diagnostic criteria. And a literature search is unrewarding. In fact, when I researched this years ago, I called a pulmonologist friend of mine. He told me acute pulmonary insufficiency wasn't really a clinical thing, and he couldn't help me define it because he didn't really know what it was. I am confident, however, it is not intended to indicate pulmonary valve insufficiency. In order to define it, I had to identify the root cause of the problem. My assessment was that intensivists felt obliged to use the diagnosis of acute post-procedural respiratory failure to justify why they were billing critical care for their professional E&M CPT code. In order to change the behavior, I had to give them a reasonable alternative that met medical necessity for critical care billing. Normal, as you can see on this slide, is easy to recognize. The patient has an uneventful wean from the ventilator, they require no supplemental oxygen and their oxygen saturation and or blood gas and or uh, PaO2 FiO2 ratio are normal. This is an uncomplicated post-operative course. Acute post-procedural respiratory failure is pretty straightforward too the patient meets acute respiratory failure criteria such as PO2 less than 60 millimeters of mercury or PCO2 greater than 50 with a pH less than 7.35. These patients have high flow oxygen needs or require inordinate amounts of PEEP. Reintubation automatically triggers PSI-11 and inability to wean the patient within 48 hours also falls into acute post-procedural respiratory failure. I therefore concluded, as you can see on this slide, that acute pulmonary insufficiency following surgery was intermediate between normal and acute post-procedural respiratory failure. These might be patients who have a slow wean without exceeding 48 hours. They may have hypoxia, which does not cross the threshold of acute hypoxic respiratory failure and may need judicious oxygen supplementation. Their PF ratio is between 300 and 399, They may be slightly hypercapnic without exceeding 50 millimeters of mercury or attaining acidosis. These patients could have excessive secretions and require moderate pulmonary toilet, but they do not require intubation. How do you get providers to use a term that isn't really a clinical thing? Same way you get them to use the term functional quadriplegia. Have them believe it serves a purpose for them or their patients that it gives them a way to describe a legitimate clinical scenario and they will buy in. A diagnosis of acute pulmonary insufficiency could certainly justify critical care ventilation management for their profi without getting them or the hospital dinged. Educate them to link respiratory failure to an alternate medical condition if that is the etiology, like acute hypoxic respiratory failure due to exacerbation of COPD. And to use the term acute pulmonary, not respiratory, insufficiency, if the patient doesn't meet respiratory failure criteria. As always, they should tell the story and tell the truth.
1: We do have a couple of minutes here to answer some of the questions you've been sending in. Eric. I'm going to toss it to you.
2: Great. Um, Drew and or Deb uh, somebody asks, I would like to understand how UC Health got AHRQ's attention. What avenue did you take to suggest the change to the PSI
5: exclude criteria? To that listener, I would just have to say I cold called. <laughs> um, I found their, uh, the address of the AHRQ QI uh, team uh, through their website, and after we had used their toolkit originally for the root cause analysis. Uh, we felt comfortable reaching out to them, and they responded directly and were very responsive. So I'm a big, I'm a big fan of uh, just finding the route of communication and then going with it.
2: Yeah, I think if you find the right person to talk to and they understand the issue, you can actually make changes. Um, Deb, how about you? Uh, during your study on PSI 6, did you see pacemaker placement and NG2 placement were co- common factors uh, or causes?
6: We were specifically in CDI reviewing the cases uh, regarding the NUS, but considering the fact that as physician advisors we review all of these, I can speak to some of this. I haven't really found NG tube placement as a common factor, but interestingly that you bring it up is recently we have seen uh, pacemaker placement and uh, PSI 6 coming up more often than we'd like, and I think the question there will be back to again. You know, are we looking for uh, something that's insignificant and getting penalized for that? Should we actually be doing all these x-rays after pacemaker? But that will require a separate investigation, I think.
2: Yeah, and I think I would just like to add, because I actually have been doing a, um, a project where I just saw a pacemaker placement that uh, ended up in a tension pneumothorax. And I think that it's really important for um, our listeners to understand that we should not be doing excessive con- uh, contortions to try to prevent triggering patient safety indicators when they're legitimate. We really need to be held accountable. And as Deb was suggesting, um, when you have a situation like this, you want to look and see whether there really is a problem that needs to be addressed that's addressing an issue with quality of care or whether it really is a documentation or some other issue that really is not impacting quality of care, but you 're getting dinged unnecessarily, but you really shouldn 't try to make uh, you know try to exclude cases by saying they 're inherent or integral to when they really are not and The last thing I want to say before I turn it back to you, Chuck, is um, Deb had mentioned sixty percent, and I really wonder whether sixty percent would actually be to say inherent or integral to. I don't really think that you need to have 100% of the time it occurs for something to be inherent or integral to. I think it just needs to be, you know, a common occurrence, and 60% sounds like it actually would have met the threshold. But I liked your solution much better. Chuck, with that, back to you.
1: Thanks, Erica, very much. That is going to be a wrap for our 458th live edition of Talked Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Dr. Drew Updike, and Deborah Annoff Tim Powell. And as always, our co-host, Dr. Eric Reamer. And thank you, AHIMA, for sponsoring this edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday.
0: Thank you for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.